podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast, Tuesday, November 30th, brought to you by epilindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network, allows you to go online, change your location, access things like American Netflix, or if you're an English expat living in Spain or wherever, BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub. Watch what you want while keeping your data safe. LibertyShield.com, EPL Pod, EPL POD to get 50% off at checkout. And today is the last day that code will be active. So today is your last chance to get 50% off your VPN. LibertyShield.com. Also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And lastly, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. EPL25 for 25% off at checkout on the EPL shop. Red25 for 25% off the Anfield Index shops. Again, last day for those codes. We will have new codes tomorrow, but these are the best offers you're going to get. 50% off using EPL Pod at Liberty Shield, EPL 25 at the EPL Index Shop on Etsy, Red 25 at the Anfield Index Shop on Etsy. Right, folks. Um, two things to, to do, start. Number one, I'm having a tremendous day. And the reason I'm having a tremendous day is because I found out last night that someone I'm very fond of, Steve McLean, is being forced to listen to Justin Bieber music while doing research for something to help somebody out. The idea of Steve McLean, who will listen to this, so hello, Steve, listening to Justin Bieber and being a believer is one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. If you know Steve, you will know he is a cantankerous man, a curmudgeon, and it, this is joyous, absolutely joyous. So if you follow Steve on Twitter, if you know Steve, I'm not going to give out his tw- Twitter handle, but if you know him, send him a clip of your favorite really crappy pop song. He'll really appreciate that. Um, on sadder note, John Sillett, who was the co-manager of Coventry City when they won the FA Cup in 1987, has died. Uh, Sillett was the joint manager with George Curtis when Coventry won their historic FA Cup, beating Tottenham 3-2 in the final. Uh, George Curtis himself died earlier this year, back in July, and John Sillett passed away this morning at the age of 85. He played for Chelsea, for Coventry and for Plymouth. He managed Hereford, Coventry and Hereford again. So thoughts with his family, uh, a great life in football and the architect of certainly Coventry's greatest hour with that FA Cup final win in 1987. And I think given everything Coventry have been through in the past 20 years with relegations, with the turmoil over the stadium, with the bad ownership and more bad ownership and everything that's come around for that club, they can at least today look back on that historic event in 1987. And I do like the fact that they're currently doing very well. They're fifth in the championship. Mark Robbins is doing an outstanding job there. Well worth noting that last season's 16th place in the championship 
was their highest finish in 15 years. Now, admittedly, they'd spent obviously quite a bit of time in, in League One, but they have that's a club that's really been through the ringer. Um, a club I've always been fond of, the, the big Ron era, and some really good players, Peter Undlove, an early Premier League legend. Dion Dublin, Robbie Keane was there, Darren Huckerby was there, Richard Shaw was there, David Boost, who unfortunately suffered that horrendous broken leg at Old Trafford, Old Trafford. Steve Agristovich in goal. Just a lot of good memories of Coventry City as a Premier League club. When I was growing up, Coventry were just always a Premier League club, or at least I remember them always being a top flight club. Now they may not have always been a top flight club. That's, you know, that's just what I remember. Um, if you look back through the years, they came into the top flight in 1967 and were in the top flight until 2001. So they were, they were a top flight club for years and years and years. And since then they've been in division one, which was then the champ, then became the championship then they were in the Football League 1, then they were in the Football League 2 for a season, back into League 1 and back into the Championship the last couple of seasons and doing really, really well this year. And I would love to see Coventry back in the top flight. They're just a club that, to me, I always associate with uh, a great time for the Premier League. And they're a club I've always had a, had a soft spot for. Highfield Road was a great stadium one of those proper old stadiums and um, things never went well once they moved to the Rico Arena. Uh, right, moving on. The Ballon d'Or was awarded last night and Lionel Messi won his seventh award. Now, this is obviously a record. He won in 09, in 10, 11, 12, 15, 19 and now in 2021. A tight margin of victory for Messi, beating Robert Lewandowski by only 33 votes. And it's caused a lot of people to complain. It's been, you know, the usual demand for, well, why has he won? He's had a quiet season by his standards and yada, yada, yada. I would have gone with Lewandowski. Personally, if I had a head vote, I would vote for Lewandowski. My main reason for voting for Lewandowski, though, would be the 2020 season where he would have won the competition, but it was cancelled because of COVID. I still have no idea why it was cancelled. Like, just because you couldn't hold an award ceremony, you couldn't have done it over Zoom or something. You couldn't have just made the announcement that he'd won and given the man the award and recognition that he deserved. The smart thing for them to do would now to announce would be to now announce that we've decided that Lewandowski was the 2020 winner. That would be the smart thing to do. The PR move would be to give it to Lewandowski for 2020 because he deserved it. Did Messi deserve it for 2021? Maybe. Maybe. It's definitely not a no. I've seen people say, oh, he had a bad season. We didn't have a bad season. That's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense to suggest he had a bad season. I saw John Aldridge say that, you know, it was the quietest season of his career. Well, it was a better season than the season before that. So that's categorically untrue. For Messi, it was a quiet season. For Messi, with the standards that he has set. For anyone else, it was a great season. A genuinely great season. What Lionel Messi did last season with 58 goals and assists in 57 games is tremendous. Remember, there are two standards in football. There is the Messi standard and then there's everybody else. So by anybody else's standard, what Messi did was brilliant. By his standards, it was the standard of a 34-year-old version of himself. We're talking about a man, arguably the greatest player ever, undoubtedly top three, certainly the greatest player of his generation by a country mile. And I've seen other people suggest that 
well, this is now two undeserved awards he had because Wes Schneider should have won it in 2010. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Maybe you believe that Wes Schneider should have won it in 2010. But allow me to counter that by saying that Messi should have won it in 2013, in 2014, in 2016, in 2017, in 2018. So you can have 2010. If you really want to make an argument over this year's, you can have that as well. But let's not pretend there's not five other awards that he should have won. Let's not pretend that the years that Cristiano was given the award, that Messi wasn't the best player on the planet. Let's not pretend that when Luka Modric won the award and Messi finished fifth, that Messi wasn't the best player. It's, it's very, very strange to me that people want to diminish the achievements of this player. The greatest player of the generation, many people's choice as the greatest player ever. He's a ridiculous alien. Is he still the greatest player ever? If your view was that Prime Messi was the greatest player ever, fine, I'm not going to dispute it. That's your view and you're welcome to it. But even those people would say, this Messi is not that Messi. But this Messi may still be the best player in the world. Now, not the current season that's ongoing. He's not having a particularly great time with PSG. But last season's Messi was still the best player in the world. It reminds me of Michael Jordan. Now, I'm a huge basketball fan. And Michael Jordan's the greatest player that's ever lived. The Michael Jordan that was the greatest player that ever lived was the Michael Jordan that played in the NBA from, 19, from 1984 to 1993. The first Jordan run. That's the greatest player who ever lived. The one who came back after retirement was no longer the greatest player who'd ever lived, but he was still the greatest player in the world. And Messi while maybe no longer at the level of being the greatest who's ever lived, is still the greatest player on the world. in the world. He's still the best player on the planet. Now, you can argue that this season it could be Salah, it could be Lewandowski, it could be Karim Benzema. But when it comes down to it, you wouldn't pick anybody over Lionel Messi. He is still the number one guy. And it's right that he has as many Ballon d'Ors as he does. It's absolutely right that he does. And no one's ever going to beat this. No one's ever going to dominate the game. I, I, at least I don't think anyone's ever going to dominate the game by being so far ahead of everybody else. Cristiano has a bunch of them that he doesn't deserve. I mean, the fact that Andreas Iniesta doesn't have one, and I would say I would rather have Andreas Iniesta than Cristiano Ronaldo. If I'm ranking the players of this generation, as it comes towards its end, I'm putting Iniesta above Ronaldo in my list. You can do what you want in your list, but Iniesta's above it on my list. Ronaldo's the greatest goal scorer we've seen, other than Messi, but as a player, Iniesta for me all day. Others too. I don't think we'll ever see any time where, Messi, where, where someone stands so far above the way Messi has. Now, you could argue we've already seen it with Maradona, but his time as the best player in the world was much shorter. I mean, Messi became the best player in the world in 2009. We're now 12 years later, and he's still the best player in the world. And he has been the entire time. But you go back before him, it was Kaká for a couple of years, it was Ronaldinho for a couple of years. It was Zidane for a couple of years. It was Or9 Il Phenomeno for a couple of years. George Weah for a couple of years. Baggio for a year and a half or so. Laudrup for a year and a half or so. Maradona for maybe five to six years. Platini for a couple of years. And that brings you back to the start of the 80s. 
But nobody other than Maradona was for more than, say, two to three years. This guy's done it for 12. Double the length of time. You could argue Maradona from probably 85, maybe 84, to 91, when it all kind of fell apart on him. But even at that point, at around 91, there's a strong case to be made that Laudrup had passed him because he had regressed. There's never been a case that anyone's passed Messi, ever. Not a strong case. You could argue this person had a better season, that person had a better season. You can't argue this person's a better player or that person's a better player because Messi is the best player and has been for 12 years. So Messi's first, Lewandowski was second. Jorginho finished third, which is laughable. I mean, the guy had a mediocre season for Chelsea, but turned up in the knockout phases of the Champions League for five games and then had a good Euros. Not a great Euros, a good Euros. And missed the penalty in the shootout in the final. For him to finish third is laughable. Benzema, fourth. He should have been top three. N'Golo Kante, again, didn't have a good season. Was good in Chelsea's knockout run in the Champions League. Wasn't particularly great at the Euros. Kante's far too high. Cristiano being sixth is a joke. The guy was actively poor for Juventus last year. Scored his goals, because of course he did, but actively poor. Poor in the Euros as well. Salah seventh behind these guys? Jesus. Nonsense. De Bruyne eighth. Didn't even have a classic vintage De Bruyne season. Ilke Gundogan was better than him. Nowhere to be seen. Gundogan isn't even in the top 30. Gigi Donnarumma. Sorry, Kylian Mbappe. I have no argument with that. Didn't have a great Euros, but don't really have an argument with it. Uh, Donnarumma. Average enough season last year for Milan. A lot of distractions over his future. Great Euros. Erling Haaland, no problem. But Romelu Lukaku should have been above Haaland. What Lukaku did in Serie A last season was sensational. And that's a more difficult league to excel in than the Bundesliga. Uh, Cialini and Benucci, 13th and 14th. You're not getting any arguments from me. They didn't have great seasons, but... For for the careers that these guys have had, to have them, you know, next to each other is, is absolutely fine with me. Uh, love both. One of the great centre-back pairings of all time. Raheem Sterling finished 15th. Raheem Sterling had probably the worst season of his career last year. He had a good Euros. But he had a bad season last year. He's having a bad season this year. Neymar in 16th, based on what? Based on what? Winning the French Cup? He wasn't particularly good at the Copa America. And PSG failed to win the league title last year. Uh, Suarez in 17th. Won a title with Atletico Madrid. Got thrown out of Barcelona. Went to Atletico Madrid and won a title. 17th. Behind Neymar and Sterling. Simon Kjær. Based on what he did on the pitch, wouldn't be on this list, but he is absolutely on this list because of the man that he is and the man that he showed himself to be at the Euros. So no problem with Simon Kerr. Mason Mount in 19th, I don't have a problem with. Mason Mount had a great season for Chelsea last year and a good Euros. Riyad Mahrez in 20th, I think that's a bit questionable. Bruno Fernandes should have been higher. I mean, he carried a Manchester United team to second last season. It's not his fault that he's forced to play with Cristiano now for club and country. And that Cristiano's habit of making those around him worse has just rubbed off on him. Latoura Martinez, he should be higher. He had a brilliant season for Inter last season. Harry Kane should be higher. 23rd is an abomination. He only got four votes. That's an abomination. 
Most goals, most assists in the Premier League last season. A historic season for Kane. Not his fault that he's surrounded by draws. Now, he wasn't good at the Euros, but he got his goals. So, he had a better season last year than Cristiano. I mean, if all if all Cristiano had to do was score some goals, Kane, Kane scored more goals at the Euros. No, Cristiano scored more goals at the Euros. Cristiano scored, I think, five at the Euros. Tap-ins and penalties, admittedly. But... I mean, Kane had a better domestic season, without question. Without question, he had a better domestic season. Kane wasn't responsible for his club falling apart. Cristiano scored three goals more. Kane had 11 assists more. It's all about Kane in that that debate. Pedri in 24th, no problem there. Phil Foden in 25th, no problem. Uh... Jared Moreno getting a vote is is interesting. They did win the Europa League, though, so fine. Uh, Nicola Barella, no problem at all. Great Euros. Great domestic season with Inter. Ruben Diaz, really? Uh, Luka Modric and Cesar Azpilicueta finishing uh, out the top 30. Azpilicueta. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Eduard Mendy. Didn't get a vote. It's incredible. Um, So the Copa Trophy, which is given to the best player under the age of 21, went to Pedri. Jude Bellingham second. Jamal Musiala third. Nuno Mendes, now at PSG, fourth. Mason Greenwood fifth. Bakayo Saka sixth. Florian Wirtz seventh. Ryan Gravenberch eighth. Giovanni Reina and Jeremy Doku rounding out the top 10. Don't really have an argument with that. But when you look at this list and then you think of all the other great young players, the likes of even Haaland and Mbappe who are established but still really, really young, this is why I say we won't see another Messi, certainly not anytime soon and certainly not for that type of length. Uh, Alexia Putalis of Barcelona won the women's Ballon d'Or. Jennifer Hermoso of Ball- of Barcelona in second. Sam Kerr of Chelsea third. Vivian Medima of Arsenal fourth, and Lique Martins of Barcelona in fifth. Three Barca players in the top five. Very very impressive. There is five Chelsea players in the top eleven, which is also really impressive, and two English women in the top 20. So between that uh, and the three English players who finished in the top 10 in the Copa, and then we have one, two, three, four, four English players in the top 30 in the Ballon d'Or. Not a bad night for the English players. I take issue with the Yashin Trophy, which is given to the best goalkeeper. Donnarumma won, and you know what? Fine. Mendy second. So... If Mendy's second in this, and not a whole mile behind uh, Donnarumma, Mendy got over double the amount of votes anyone from third down did. Well over double. But yet he didn't get one single vote in the Ballon d'Or while Donnarumma finished 10th. That doesn't make sense. Uh, Jan Oblak third, Ederson in fourth, Manuel Nauer fifth, Emmy Martinez sixth. Great season for Villa, no problem. Kasper Schmeichel in seventh, I have an issue with. He didn't have a particularly good season. He won an FA Cup, but he didn't have a particularly good season. Uh, Thibaut Courtois, Kaylor Navas. Kaylor Navas, who was so good that PSG went out and replaced him in the summer. And Samir Handanovic. Best striker of the year given to Lewandowski. That award created, I think, purely to give him an award. Should have just given him the 2020 Ballon d'Or. And club of the year is Chelsea. They won the European Cup, despite the fact that they finished fourth and were clearly not the best English team. They did win the European Cup. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, I think... I think a lot of the griping and moaning about this is is just a bit pointless these competitions are 
popularity competition. And Lewandowski isn't as sexy a name as Messi. He's, you know, he's Polish, so he's not as big time from one of those, you know, elite footballing nations. Plays in the Bundesliga, which doesn't have the same same hype as the Premier League, Serie A, Liga, the three traditional powerhouses. I would have gone with Lewandowski, but like I say, it would have been largely because he'd got robbed last year with the award not being given out. But yeah, Messi's the best player in the world. He just is the best player in the world. He's not the best player of all time anymore because he's not at that level anymore. There's no argument now that this version of Messi is the best player ever. But this version of Messi is the best player right now. It's as simple as that. Um, I'll take a break. When we come back, two games in the Premier League tonight to look forward to. So we'll do a quick preview of them. And uh, we'll wrap up with the gossip and we'll be done nice and early. Speak to you in a few. Right, welcome back. One last thing on the Ballon d'Or. Cristiano Ronaldo has accused the French football editor of lying about his only ambition before retiring being to win more Ballon d'Ors than Lionel Messi. Ballon d'Or organiser Pascal Ferre made the claim to the New York Times. Um, so he said, Ronaldo only has one ambition, that is to retire with more Ballon d'Or than Messi, and I know this because he has told me. Cristiano has said he lied, he used my name to promote himself and promote the publication he works for. It is unacceptable that the person responsible for awarding such a prestigious prize could lie in this way. In absolute disrespect for someone who has always respected France football and the Ballon d'Or, the biggest ambition of my career is to win national and international titles for the club I represent and the national team in my country. I always win for myself and the clubs I represent. I win for myself and for those who love me. I don't win against others. It's hard to believe a word that comes out of his mouth, to be honest, uh, especially when he did that interview with Pierce Morgan and Morgan said, what's your, you know, if you could win one thing, what would it be? And he said, the most golden balls. That's what he said. It's his own words. He said he, thought he should win the most golden balls and he thought he deserved it because in his mind he thinks he's the best player ever now it's fine for him to think that and that mentality is why he's had such a great career but to come out and, and, and claim that this other man has lied when you have said in another interview that that was your ambition that's the first thing that came to your mind Morgan asked the question and the first thing that came to your mind was to win the most golden balls. If you ask Lionel Messi that question, he'll say to win Champions Leagues, to win a World Cup for Argentina. And that's the difference between Messi and Cristiano. That's the difference between a great goal scorer in Cristiano and a great player in Messi. Messi's about the team. And you can look up and down at their stats over the years. Goals, assists, chances created etc etc and the difference between Messi and Cristiano is Messi plays for the team Cristiano plays for Cristiano you can see it in the type of performances they put in you can see it in the effort they put in now don't watch the video of Messi strolling around in the Man City game and use that to hang him but when he was at his peak when he was a younger man he was a pressing monster at Barcelona Constantly on the move, constantly looking for the ball, looking to make things happen. Right, we do have two Premier League games tonight. First up, bottom of the table clash. 20th place Newcastle face 19th place Norwich. Norwich, a team in form. Two wins and a draw from the last three, giving them seven points. Newcastle, two wins in the last, two defeats and three draws from the last five. Uh, six points on the season, no wins, negative 14 goal differential and the worst defence in the league. Norwich, negative 20, but that's because they have the worst attack in the league. Second worst defence, but 
They have looked a lot better in recent weeks. Won their last game under, under Daniel Farka. Dean Smith in the door. Won their first game under him and drew at the weekend. Looking more resilient. Looking more organised. Looking harder to beat. This should be an interesting game. Newcastle have to win this game. There is, there is no room for error for the tune. They have to win this game. They get Norwich tonight. And then at the weekend... They get Burnley, both at home. And I think they have to win both games to stay up. I think if they lose both, the the gulf is going to be 12 points minimum between them and the teams above. I don't think they can afford... Sorry, the gulf is going to be six points. They'll have six, the others will have 12. I don't think they can make that up. Not when you consider that Leeds, Watford, Southampton are going to be picking up points along the way. I think they'll believe in themselves... Too big a hole to climb out of, especially when you start to look at what the fixtures look for, look like off the back of those two games. They go away to Leicester, home to Liverpool, home to City, home to United. Sorry, away to. Let me start that again. They go Newcastle, Norwich at home, Burnley at home. Then they go away to Leicester, away to Liverpool, home to City, home to Manchester United, away to Everton, away to Southampton. Home to Watford, away to Leeds, home to Everton. Like, there's a couple of winnable games here. Everton are in poor form. Watford aren't great. Saints are hit and miss. But those are also massive six-pointer games. Leeds as well. With Everton's current form, you've got two six-pointers in the next two games. Then four... That'll be really tough. Leicester, Liverpool, City and United. And then you get five straight, quote-unquote, six-pointers. Both Everton games, Southampton, Watford and Leeds. That is a really tough run. A really tough run for Newcastle. And we could get to the middle of January and they're just cut adrift at the bottom of the league. And the, the second Everton game, the last game of that run I've just gone through, of 11 games, that's November, sorry, that's February the 9th. February the 9th, they could be dead and buried. They really need to start getting points on the board. They've got to start winning football matches. They have to beat Norwich, they have to beat Burnley. Because they're unlikely to take a whole lot of much from the four that follow. I don't see them going to Leicester and winning. Certainly don't see them going to Anfield and getting anything. City will trounce them. Manchester United at home, maybe. But they've got to give themselves a fighting chance that when they roll into that run of Everton, Southampton, Watford, Leeds and Everton again, that they're not miles behind everybody else. They have to win these next two games. Now, heading into the game tonight... Matt Ritchie is suspended, Jamal Lachelles is suspended, Paul Dummett is injured, and Dwight Gale is injured. Federico Fernandez is expected to come into the team for Lachelles. I don't know how he can live up to the expectations that's been set for him. People have behaved like he's some sort of great defender, as if he's Van Dyke. But when he was in the team, it's not like he was particularly good. It's not like they were a good defensive team with him in the team. He was part of a bad defence. So he's got huge expectations to live up to. My assumption is that Jamal Lewis will come in at left back. Fellas barely played all season. His confidence has got to be in the toilet. And he's going to be thrown into what is a massive game for Newcastle against his former club. Sam Byram is injured for uh, for Watford, for Watford, for Norwich. I can't speak today. Uh, Matthias Norman is injured. That's a big, big blow. He's been really important to them recently. That's a huge blow. And Christoph Zimmerman is um, is injured. Ozan Kabak may still be out. He's got some weird virus thing. Could be COVID, don't know. But he may be out as well. Um, it's must win. For Newcastle. 
Norwich, a point is a good result. If Norwich can get out of there with a draw, they will be chuffed. But Newcastle have to win. They cannot afford anything less. That's the 7.30 kickoff. At 8.15, Leeds will play Crystal Palace. Leeds are 17th. They are three points clear of the relegation zone. But Burnley have a game in hand and a better goal difference. So Leeds could really do with starting to pick up some points. Palace currently sit 11th. They've been really good this season. They were poor at the weekend. Without doubt their poorest performance of the season. Uh, only the third defeat though. But they had lost to Chelsea and Liverpool. the Two of the three best teams in the country. Losing to Villa at home was very, very disappointing for them. Especially as Villa are now level on points with them. And they've been much better than Villa this season. Their issue has been not turning draws into wins. Seven draws this season. It's the most in the league. But they have only lost three times. And when you consider Brighton have lost the same amount of times. And then only the top three have lost less. It's pretty impressive what Vieira has done. Um, a neutral goal differential, scored 19, conceded 19. You'd like to see them score a couple more goals, concede a few less, but like I say, six of those goals came against Liverpool and Chelsea. Three came against Burnley in that mad game. Defensively, they have been good this season. Um, Gwehi and Anderson have looked really good at centre-back. I like the look of Mitchell. I think they need a right-back. Joel Ward wouldn't be for me, but he's done solidly enough this season. Leeds have got to get a get a win here. They've only won twice this season. They've been hugely disappointing. It is second season syndrome. I've talked about this before. We talked about it all through last season with Sheffield United. Was told it wouldn't happen for Leeds. They were too good, too well prepared, blah, 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 blah. Nothing properly prepares you for teams figuring you out. And teams have figured Leeds out a bit this season. They figured out the overloads. They figured out the pressing. They figured out where the holes are defensively. And there are holes defensively. There's also championship players in that Leeds team. Championship caliber players who got through last season by the skin of their teeth. Because teams started to figure them out second time around. This season, they're being exposed. Liam Cooper has been awful. Dallas hasn't had the same kind of effect. Don't think Matthias, Matthias Glish has been as good this season. They've had injuries, of course. Lorente missed some time. Phillips has missed time. Rafinha missed a couple of games. Rodrigo missed a couple of games. The biggest loss has been Bamford. They have no goal scorer without Patrick Bamford. He is unlikely to play tonight, as is Luke Ayling. Robin Cock is still out. He had surgery. He could be out for a while. Um, without Bamford it's hard to see them scoring goals now for Palace no James MacArthur that's a blow he's been good no Joachim Anderson is a big blow and I wonder who will play instead of him will they move Coyate to centre back certainly it's one option for them he played quite well there last season to be fair under Roy Hodgson but it's not a position he's massively familiar with, other than the games he played there last year. You look through the squad, and there's not a whole lot of options. They are short on depth centre-back options. Martin Kelly could come into the team. Bringing him in cold could be a, could be a big ask. Yarrow Riedeveld was a centre-back when they bought him, but he's pretty much exclusively played in midfield the last couple of years. You could bring in James Tompkins. Again, you're bringing him in cold. He might be the best option. He might be the best option. He's made three appearances thus far this season. It probably will be him who steps in. But losing Anderson is, is massive. He's been so important. What a good signing he was. These are two big games at the foot of the table. I don't think the football will be of a very high quality. Certainly not in the Newcastle-Norwich game. I could see that being a bit of a, an attritional watch. 
Leeds versus Palace, at least it'll be a high-tempo game. I really want to see the battle between Conor Gallagher and, and Calvin Phillips. That's one to keep an eye on. Obviously, Leeds will be heavily dependent on Rafinha. Palace, will Ezzy get a start or will he come off the bench again? Does Elisa keep his place in the team? How does Zaha react to being subbed off at the weekend? He didn't seem all that happy at the time. Can they expose the gaps in that Leeds defence? If not, you'd worry about them. I, I think Palace are probably a slight favourite going into that game, but I will go with a draw. I'll go with a 2-2 draw in the Leeds-Palace game. Newcastle-Norwich is hard to pick. Newcastle have just been so, so poor. Now, they have looked slightly better under Eddie Howe. But, I mean, that's like saying that my car crash was slightly better than yours. It's not a good thing. You still crashed your car. Um, I'll I'll go with a draw again. I'll go 1-1. Don't think Norwich will score too many goals. But I don't think Leeds have, or Newcastle have much capability of scoring goals either. I will go 1-1 in the Newcastle-Norwich game and 2-2 in the Leeds-Palace game. Better games tomorrow, six games tomorrow, um, and then two on Thursday as well. So it's a nice week of football. And the Thursday games are very interesting, so I'm looking forward to, to getting to those. But um, that's basically us then for today. Did want to advise that you should read a piece on the BBC website. Go to bbc.com forward slash sport forward slash football and look for the piece on Arrigo Saki's Immortals and their brush with death. And I'm looking at a picture of this AC Milan team from 1989, and it is absolutely sensational. Just a who's who of great, great players. You've got, in the back row in this picture, you've got Maldini, maybe the greatest defender of all time. You've got Marco van Basten, maybe the greatest number nine ever. Rude Hullet, who at his prime was the second best player in the world. Carlo Ancelotti, people forget what a great player he was and what a great playing career he had. He was an outstanding midfield player and key to those sacky teams. Frank Reichard, one of the greatest defensive midfielders ever, went on and became a really good centre-back with Ajax and won a Champions League with them as well. Giovanni Galli, the goalkeeper, underrated, very, very impressive keeper, had a good career. You've got maybe the best centre-back ever in Franco Baresi. What a player he was. What a sensational player he was. Roberto Donadoni. I mean, it doesn't get much better as a right-sided or left-sided midfielder. Hard work, quality on the ball than Donadoni. Billy Costa-Curta, maybe the best man-to-man marker the game's ever seen. Sensational defender. Always underrated because of who he played with. Angelo Colombo. Another hard-working, high-energy midfielder. Very, very underrated. Often overlooked when people talk about this team. And Maro Tosato. Tosati. Maro Tosati. Uh, the, the best right-back the, the games had seen at that point. As a defensive player, flawless. Very good going forward. Not a ball carrier so much, but a solid passer would overlap, would do everything you'd want. Basically the precursor to the sort of recent generation of Spanish right-backs. Your Arbeloas, your Carvials, your Azpilicuetas. A really good defence-first fullback, but solid going forward. That is a sensational team. They would go on to beat Stoya Bucharest 4-0 in that final. But that piece is about earlier in that season and uh, a trip to... To Belgrade. So do give that one a read. Right. Unfortunately, uh, we're going to have to end on sad news today. 
Uh, former Liverpool and Arsenal legend Ray Kennedy has passed away at the age of 70. He played for Arsenal between 1968 and 1974, joined Liverpool and spent eight years at the club, then moved on to Swansea, then Hartlepool, um, and then spent some time in Cyprus. He made 17 appearances for England, uh, winning three caps. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 1984, which brought to a very premature end his distinguished football career. Uh, he was forced to sell his medals in 93. It's been a very tough time for Ray Kennedy and his family, but an absolute legend on the pitch. Won a league title and an FA Cup with Arsenal in their double season of 71. Won five league titles, a UEFA Cup, three European Cups and a League Cup with Liverpool during his spell at the club. Ray Kennedy, an absolute icon. A legend to many. A great, great player. Uh, rest in peace. Thoughts with his family. At this sad hour, we are going to have to end on the gossip just to cheer things up because that is that's heartbreaking news. Uh, he is he's had a, such a tough time over the past forty years since his diagnosis. Um, Barcelona are keen to sign Manchester City and Spain forward Ferran Torres. Um, they're keen to sign everybody. They have no money. Executives from Barcelona spoke to Torres' representatives at Monday's Ballon d'Or. It's nonsense. Um, Barca are interested in Anthony Martial. I wouldn't say so if they've seen him play. Um, Paul Pogba recently spoke to Paris Saint-Germain president Nazir Al-Khalifi, but the French club insists that it was nothing more than a chance meeting. We'll, we'll see come summer. Uh, Manchester United are set to watch Amadou Hydera. As a with a, move, with a view to a possible move in January, so this is a very basic one plus one equals three link. He was the last signing made by RB Leipzig when Ralph Ranić was the coach for one year um, in the Bundesliga. He has not excelled at Leipzig. He has struggled for playing time. I don't see United making a move for him. Football Insider, the big spoofer that he is says that West Ham are interested in Nat Phillips. Wolves could lower their asking price for Adama Traore to £20 million, and that could alert Liverpool. Let me confirm that it will not alert Liverpool. Uh, but again, it's Football Insider, so you throw it right in the bin. Leeds are considering a, me- a move for Mariano Diaz of Real Madrid. That would be an interesting signing. Mariano's a good player. It hasn't worked for Real because he's not good enough to play for Real Madrid. But he is a good player. And when he was at Lyon, he was doing brilliantly. Moved there from Real, scored 18 goals in 34 league games in his first season, 21 and 45, all competitions. Real brought him back and he just isn't Real Madrid quality, unfortunately. Um, he came up through their academy, was Played for the C team, scored 15 in 26 games. Moved up to the B team and scored 32 in 44 games. So understandable that they would bring him back. You know, someone with the the Real Madrid DNA and all that other good stuff. But Leon was was a good fit for him, and unfortunately, he uh, he never got to play. He's had a weird international career. He's been capped once for the Dominican Republic. And he he decided that he when he moved back to Real Madrid that he was going to play for Spain. So he stopped playing for the Dominican Republic or retired from the Dominican Republic and uh, hasn't been called up to the Spanish squad and doesn't look like being called up to the Spanish squad. But he will be a good signing for Leeds. Uh, Malang Sar is being targeted by Inter Milan. I mean, he'd be a decent squad player there, nothing more. Newcastle, Newcastle are willing to spend crazy money Crazy money to sign Marcelo Brozovic of Inter Milan. That's by the Athletic, so it's at least well-sourced. Flamengo are considering a January move for Spanish centre-back Pablo Mari of Arsenal. Interesting, he was in Brazil before. Uh, That's where, where they bought him from. It's quite an unusual career he has had. 
He obviously was at Mallorca, then he was at Man City. They sold him to Flamengo uh, after a bunch of loans that didn't really work. Arsenal decided to buy him as a backup centre-back, and I think he's a solid backup centre-back. But um, he's had a rather bizarre career. Interesting. Move back to Brazil might suit him. Um, Newcastle have joined AC Milan in showing interest in Renato Sanchez. And Nuno Espirito Santo wants a quick return to management following a sacking by Tottenham. But a Premier League move is more likely than a reported move to League One. I would suggest that he take some time off and uh, reevaluate things um, and come back refreshed. That would be my that would be my bit of advice to um, to Nuno. He has been linked today with the Everton job, and tomorrow we'll talk about Everton and Rafa and the what could happen should he get the sack and who could come in. But needless to say. My favourites among those that the bookies are offering odds on. Duncan Ferguson at 2-1. to one. Magnificent. He's only been there for seven years of failure. Why not let him fail all by himself? Um, maybe that's how they get rid of him. Give him the manager's job. Let him fail. And then you can sack him. I think they're just scared to sack him in case he wrecks the place. Uh, Steve Bruce at 10-1. to one. Oh, chef's kiss on that one. And John Terry. If ever was a man well suited to managing Everton. It could be John Terry. That is it today, folks. That's the show. Thank you, as always. I will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.